here and to our college students that aren't here. We miss you guys. As you can tell, we are praying for families and are in a college town. So for those of you that are here this morning, welcome. We'll be continuing our series in Philippians. If you were here with us last week, we got to go through how the gospel not only calls us to unity, but is the very thing that unifies us. So the gospel doesn't just call us to unity, but it's the very thing that binds us together as the body of Christ. Well, this morning, we'll get to continue on in that call in Philippians 4, 4 through 7. So as you make your way there, we'll be in Philippians 4, 4 through 7 this morning as we continue verse by verse through Philippians. And that passage reads, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So we'll continue through that this morning, and we'll get to dive deep into what Paul continues to say here to the church in Philippi. But the big thing I want us to get at this morning, the overarching theme that these verses will show us, is that our rejoicing is in the Lord. If it's not in the Lord, if it's in anything else, we have no means, we have no grounds for rejoicing. And so we'll get to see how Paul shows us that through these verses. But again, just to level with everybody in the room and, and to realize what Paul is saying here. And this has been a steady theme to the church of Philippi. This has been a steady theme in Paul's life, this call to rejoice. If you know anything about Paul, if anyone had a, an excuse, a reason to not rejoice, a reason to sit in self-pity and to sit in the suffering he'd be going through, it was Paul. He spent most of his life in chains. The one who writes to us, not only writes to us about rejoicing, but sets the example of how we should be rejoicing in all things and all circumstances. He was the one who faced those very things. So if anybody had an out, had an excuse to not, it would be Paul. Yet we see here he's calling us to rejoice. He did so in chapter 3 at the very beginning. He said, finally, my brothers, my sisters, rejoice in the Lord. He says it in Philippians 4.13, we can endure all things, so rejoice in the Lord. It's a steady theme that's in the midst of suffering. Our rejoice in the midst of suffering. So we take it seriously, as does Paul, that as we share in the glory of Christ, we must also share in his suffering so that on the final day, we'll be raised up in his glory, but the two can't happen without each other. The glory isn't refined unless it's through the suffering of Christ and his people. But we'll get to see this morning why that is something we get to rejoice in. So Father, as we come before you, as we dive into your word to us this morning, we just pray that you show us more of yourself, more of your will for each individual lives, God, that we can come together as your body as we go out of this place and take with us your truth, your assurance, and the love you've shown us through your Son. So please, Father, let us rejoice in you this morning. No matter what everyone brings in here this morning with themselves, no matter what aches and pains and twinges that they bring in here, God, whether it be with family, whether it be with a job, whether it be with themselves, I just pray 
that they would set that aside, not just on themselves, but at your feet this morning, God. That if there be someone in here that does not feel like there's anything worth rejoicing about, God, I pray for them specifically. You would set a new breath in their lungs to sing your praises, that they would rejoice in you more than ever, no matter what they may be going through or heading into. So, Father, thank you for the call to rejoice. Thank you that you're worth rejoicing in, and please show us that this morning. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So Paul, picking up in verse 4 here, with, this, with the call to rejoice in the Lord always, again, I will say rejoice. He doubles down on that here. Again, like I said, this is Paul's constant plea. And we're faced with the question, and we leveled with each other last week, as we're called to stand firm thus in the Lord, what happens when we don't feel like standing? What happens when we feel so weak we can't stand? Well, the same call this week, when we're called to rejoice And the Lord, what happens when we don't feel like rejoicing? What happens when X, Y, Z fell through throughout the week, and so we feel no need to rejoice? What happens when we feel like we've been faithful in our rejoicing, but it hasn't been met by God's providence in our minds? All real life things that we have to bring to Scripture as the branch church, we don't want to just come in here, hear scripture, and think it to be a good thing as if it's something that doesn't actually meet us where we're at and love us enough to rub away the friction of our lives. The very things that we hear rejoice in the Lord, and then we think, we can all think of that backdoor suffering that gives us an out in our minds of, yes, but this is so hard, yes, but this doesn't feel like something to rejoice in whether it be financial for me and fundraising for full-time ministry as I was prepping for this. That was the very thing the Lord dug up to the forefront of my mind. It's not a process I've rejoiced in. It's not something I enjoy doing. It's not even something I'm trusting Him in if I'm being honest with myself and with you all. So I know I have one. I know we all have one. When we see that call to rejoice in the Lord always, we think, but this, but that, as if it's not something we can rejoice in the Lord through. And the reality is, our rejoicing in those circumstances, in suffering, just as Paul did, and our Savior, just as he rejoiced, even more so as he bore our cross, should be inflated in the midst of suffering. As Paul calls us in other places, to rejoice in our sufferings, just as much as we rejoice in the Lord here. But why is that? Not to leave some cheap encouragement, but because the very thing we rejoice in, it says it right here, is in the Lord, not in our present circumstances. Not in our present situation, not in the trial we just got out of or the one we're heading towards, but to rejoice in the Lord. But why is this so important? We read it and it makes sense, but practically, do we live it out? I would say we'd be far more freed up and would rejoice much, much more if we realized the thing we're called to rejoice in and His goodness. Too many times we fall into rejoicing in response to or in light of a happening or a situation, whether that be a promotion or a good grade or a kid listening, obeying for once maybe, Or a kid, if you're in the room and you rejoice in being a good son or daughter. We rejoice in circumstance. We don't rejoice in the Lord. 
So we sit back and wonder sometimes why our rejoicing, why our level of joy fluctuates so much. It's because we, pray, we place it in temporal things that they themselves fluctuate. There's no way our joy can be steady. There's no way our foundation can be firm if we don't rejoice in the thing that is our foundation, being the Lord. The, the out that the Lord gives us is himself and what we're called to rejoice in. He doesn't say rejoice in the Lord always and your providence and your deliverance and this and that as if we haven't already been delivered. As Christ followers, as Christians, if we have a relationship with Christ, we have already been given every providence we could ever hope to have or gain through Christ. Through the sacrifice He made on the cross, through the life He lived as we inherit His righteousness as sons and daughters of the King. So if we rejoiced in that, instead of our circumstances, instead of our current situations, I have a feeling the church at large would look much more like it loves Christ rather than what He has to offer. Does that make sense this morning? Because when we, as Christians, as followers of Christ, if our rejoicing is so limited, both to ourselves, to each other, and then to the world, quite frankly, if I was in the world and had no idea about the God or knew nothing about the Lord that Christians spoke of, I too wouldn't be so inclined to follow a God that leaves me so up and down. Just being honest this morning, why, why, why should they? Even though we know the Lord is our firm foundation, we treat Him like He's quicksand, like we can't trust Him. Like if we step out in faith as if we haven't already been pulled out in faith, that we're going to be let down and fall through. So instead, we jump on this roller coaster of self-deliverance and trusting our circumstances to bring us joy. Because joy and rejoicing share in the same root word of joy itself. So we rejoice in what brings us joy to break it down and make it simple. We rejoice in the very thing that brings us joy. And the fact of the matter is, this is why our joy that we carry, that's shut up in our bones, is so otherworldly that it doesn't need us to partake in it. It is what it is without us. It's so magnificent that our only response is to rejoice in the Lord. Right? It doesn't need our say-so. It doesn't need our additives to do that very thing the Lord calls us to do. Why this is so significant, why our lives should carry such a supernatural air about themselves, is because our foundation, our source of joy, is an ever-flowing well. It never runs dry. Everything else we could ever seek joy in, everything else we would hope to plant the spigot of our lives in, that would bring about the very sustenance we live by will let us down. It will fade. It will leave us thirsting for more. It will leave us hungry for more. That's why I'm such a huge fan of the verbiage the Bible uses that come to me in Christ and you will thirst no more. That He's our daily bread. He's our very provision. So bring it back to the starting question, how can we possibly rejoice when we feel like we're in such a circumstance, such a present suffering, that there's no way we can rejoice? Well, quite simply, it's because, yeah, absolutely, there's no way we could ever rejoice in some of the things that we go through. 
There's no way that we could ever rejoice in cancer striking a family member. There's no way that in what happened overseas in New Zealand to Muslims that we should hope to have reached before that tragedy happened. There's things that happen like that that there's, of course, no way we could ever rejoice in. But we can rejoice through those things because of who we rejoice in. We're huge on verbiage and semantics here, but that's because whether we know it or not, verbiage and semantics are what we base our convictions, our beliefs, and our ideologies on. So instead of rejoicing in other things that aren't the Lord, that aren't the foundation of our lives, that aren't the source of our joy, we can instead rejoice in the very thing that brings us to life, being the Lord, so that we can rejoice through anything absolutely anything i wish the christian church at large would just catch wind of this can you imagine how differently your life would look how differently the the big c church's life would look if we just caught a wind of this belief of that the very thing we rejoice in frees us up to rejoice no matter what no matter what and that means Exactly what I say, no matter what, because we can all think of it. What's the worst case scenario that could happen to any single one of us right now? We drop dead. For a Christian, what is that? We go home. But we introduce worldly things, things that fluctuate. We introduce finances. We introduce security. We introduce fear of health. We introduce the fear of if our children obey. We introduce the fear of if we can, as college students, make the grades, do our parents proud, honor our Savior through our efforts. We introduce all these things when the reality is we simply introduce self to be the foundation. Not that those fears aren't valid, not that they aren't present, and not that they aren't hard-pressing, because Scripture says otherwise, that they are, that they are very real, that we're being turned over to death all the day long, but in the same breath, so that we can become alive in and through Christ. Because, friends, again, the foundation of our joy is what we will always rejoice in. So if our foundation for joy in our daily life is our performance, we might get by some days. But we will certainly fall very, very far back into the foundation of a Father who will discipline us into pulling us back into Himself and showing us that we are called to rejoice in the Lord. Then and only then can we rejoice through any circumstance. That means our rejoicing in the Lord should lead to a steady rhythm of life. Not a complacent rhythm of life, but a steady rhythm of life. If our foundation is never changing, if the Lord is all-present, all-knowing, and never changing, does our level of joy, does our source of joy ever change? No. But too many times when we miss what we just went through, when we miss the fact that we are called to rejoice in the Lord, we place our joy in other things, and so our rejoicing, which absolutely fluctuates. Like I said, why would the world be interested at all in worshiping the Savior that the American church is portraying today? that bases Christ's goodness on the things that He can give us as if He hasn't already given us everything. 
I would think it would be a far more attractive picture to one who needs life, who doesn't even know that they're dead. If they saw a people, if they saw a people group as Christians in the world today who are living as if they're actually alive and didn't just do that week to week when things were going good, but had a steady rhythm of life. That being because our source, our source of joy never changing and is self-sustaining. Anything else is fluctuating, makes us the core of our joy, and will kill our spirit as it feeds our flesh. And that's the thing we have to be so self-aware of, is that if anything else is the foundation of our joy, it may feed our flesh, but it will suffocate our spirit. There's things that feel good and will make us feel as if we're delivered. Such as that promotion, such as the good grades. What happens when we couple our performance and think of that to be Christ's deliverance of us? We slip into thinking, practically, we're our own Savior. As if we still need saving. When Christ has come, Christ died and Christ has risen. This calls us to a steady rhythm of life that is twofold, that we should suffer well and be known for suffering well. And the church, that as we bear in one another's sufferings, as we take on one another's burdens, that we should be able to say to one another that Kyle suffers well, that Jack suffers well, and that we should be able, and this is the beautiful thing I love, and this is a free sidebar here, this is something that's so beautiful and, and, and intricate and unique to the body of Christ is that the call to share in one another's sufferings covers our own backs when we're not suffering well. That when we can know the very standard of suffering we're called to in this life, that when we're not doing that, we have brothers and sisters beside us who will pick us up and throw us over their shoulders until they can suffer well that will cover us in prayer and wrap us up until we can suffer well. That's why it's unique to the body of Christ, to the church, that we get to share in one another's burdens. And I know you may be thinking, well, my life's really not that bad this week. I don't know why he's harping so much on suffering. Well, one, because that's the main point of this scripture. And two, because if we're honest with ourselves and we look at our coming glory in the Lord, all this life is is suffering. It's just whether or not we do it well. That even the good things we get in this life that are from the Lord, like marriage, like brotherhood, sisterhood, fellowship, Christ-centered community, are talked about as just taste, just a shadow of what's to come. That as we live in this, the Spirit is willing in us through Christ and through the Holy Spirit, the Spirit is willing to obey. The mind and heart are not. If we're honest with ourselves and self-aware that all this life is is a steady race and pursuit of the Father who loves us, all the while having to fight ourselves to do it. It's like we're in a potato sack race and the other leg's just not wanting to listen 
And we have to drag it along sometimes, and sometimes that hurts. And sometimes it may feel like we're not moving, but the fact of the matter is, again, what's so unique about the body of Christ is even when we're not, even when we're falling, we're falling forward. And even when we're not getting back up, when we feel like we don't have the strength, when we feel like we're coming in here and don't have any means to rejoice, we have brothers and sisters and a Father who will drag us into His glory if that's what it takes. The way that the Bible uses the imagery of us being His sheep and the Father being our shepherd, what were some of the ways a shepherd would ring his sheep back into himself? The cartoons do it perfectly. He would take his cane and wring their neck and pull them back in to save them from themselves. Disciplining them back into his merciful fold, back into his gracious and his goodness to keep them from the wolves of life, to keep them from leading themselves. When we fight that, when we act as sheep, running to be astray, all we're doing is fluctuating and we're not giving each other or the world a very good picture of what it means to have a firm foundation. This is, again, something that is so unique to the Christian faith amongst other religions is that you take any other one, it always couples works with the one that would claim to be the Savior. That the Savior saves as long as it has something worth saving. Christianity is unique in the way it levels with us and say we're not, but Christ was loving and able and God sent him and crushed him for people that weren't worth saving to save them. That immediately frees us up and that our foundation, even from the beginning, didn't hinge on us. Our salvation didn't hinge on our own spirit, but the spirit that's given to us through Christ's suffering. So why not have our rejoicing be rock steady? There's every capability. We have every, every chance to do so through the Spirit. We have such a renewed mind that guides the heart that we can take no matter what's going on, no matter whether you lose your job, you lose your family, you lose your life all in the same week. We have such a renewed mind that we can count every breath as our next blessing. But only if we view Christ for what He is. And we hit on this a couple weeks ago, that the only way we can suffer well, the only way that we can suffer well for each other and the world is to recognize Christ for who He is, and that's our all in all. That's our all in all. We're not going to get anything else better. There's, there's no trick, there's no ace up God's sleeve. He already sent himself. We miss that. The world will paint us into a corner to miss that. The devil tried to paint Christ into a corner overlooking the wilderness. And we can paint ourselves into a corner thinking if God is the God he says he is, if he's so good, then why haven't I gotten this? Why haven't I yet been delivered from this? Why am I not free of this addiction, of this anxiety, of this worry, of this and this and this? We have been. We're just locking ourselves up in chains. That's the very reason Christ came. 
That's the very reason he had to have lived the perfect life he did because his righteousness was the very key that sets us free from those chains and trades them in to chains to righteousness. So our minds need to be renewed so much so and a huge thing we we preach here is preach the gospel to yourselves every day. That's not just a fortune cookie thing. It's not just a suggestion, it's a commandment from Scripture. As we're called to pick up and bear our cross daily, we can't do that without recognizing the gospel. We can't know what the gospel is without experiencing the joy of the Lord, and we can't do that unless we know Christ. But Paul did. And that's why it's such a freeing and encouraging thing that our call is to rejoice and the Lord, it will lead us to a steady rhythm of life. Imagine what it would look like to a coworker if one, we were loving enough to build meaningful relationships with them, and two, if we were honest through those relationships, that the question most of us get asked every single day when we first see somebody face-to-face, whether we saw them the day before, whether we saw them earlier that day, hey man, how you doing? What's, what's the response? 100% of the time, probably. Good, good. How about you? Pastor Kyle is great at this. What if the response was, honestly, today's been awful? <laughs> Can you imagine a coworker being like, well, maybe they don't want it, but now they got it. <laughs> imagine they know you to be a Christian. Imagine, just step into this with me. They ask you, hey, how are you doing? Say, man, it has been a hard week. (laughs) Why? What do you mean? They know in their mind you're a Christian. They don't have to ask that. They just, why? How? What do you mean? (sighs) Well, my my mom is sick. Or if if you have a child in the room, kids just not listening. I don't know if they'll ever get it. Immediately they connect. They're going through suffering. Everybody's always going through suffering. What's the difference in that conversation? We can show them we have a foundation that lets us suffer well. We can level with them in the way that we love them enough to speak honestly. Say, man, I just feel like I'm falling apart this week. I've been struggling with this for the longest time, and I just, I just don't know if I'll get it. They can't offer you a single thing. They might try to, but you're really only sharing that so we can offer them the, the footnote and the baseline. of. But man, through it all, I know God is good. It might take 20 conversations. It might take 50. They may never get it, but what happens 20, 30, 50 years down the line when they face a similar suffering and their world is falling apart? And they're coming to grips with the reality. They don't have anything to lean on because they don't. And then God can stir their mind up to think about one conversation they had with a faithful follower of Christ. And think, man, I'll never forget. I'll never forget. So-and-so told me about that one day. And gosh, I just don't know what my hope is right now. I don't have one, but he said his God was good enough. And here's the sad part about it. We're so quick to turn on our own Savior and be bitter towards a loving Father that we will never even share in our sufferings with one another. If we're honest, I'm the same way. I'm so quick to try to take 
suffering on myself that I'll never even share it with my roommate I've known for 20 years when he already knows I'm not doing well. I'm so quick to be bitter at a father who's just trying to love me through a present suffering that if I can't even share it with a brother or sister, how in the world is it going to be a good witness to the world? When we make anything else to be the foundation of our joy, we don't have means of rejoicing. But the beautiful thing about it is, is when Christ is our foundation, it's so far to say that Christ is set up as our firm foundation. It's a beautiful picture as if we were just struggling through sand, like when you're walking on the beach and it's too hot, and you're just trying to find a cool spot to stand firm on. Even when you find one, you're going to sink. It's as if God picks us up by the renewal of our mind and sets us on a firm foundation that is unshakable, won't ever change, and isn't budging. Our lives can reflect that. Our lives should reflect that. But not by ourselves. Galatians 2.20 says it this way. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life's not even ours that we wrestle and toil with. It's Christ. We were once dead in our trespasses. But God... We see it in 1 Peter 4, 12 through 14. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised. Why should we not be surprised? Because once we're set up on our firm foundation, this life is swimming against the current of this world. It's hard. It's not natural. The way that we recognize the sin of our flesh now and the renewal of our mind and a beating heart for Christ is unnatural. It's supernatural. Just like the Spirit that equips us. Just like it's no longer us who live, but Christ who lives in us. So we have the call, don't be surprised. As though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. You think, well, that's a backwards thing to say. But it's necessary. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are, listen to this, this is great. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. If you are insulted, if you face affliction in this life, both from the seen and unseen, you are blessed. And listen, it doesn't go on to say because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you to show you that you can get through it. That's not why you're blessed. It's not that if you, sh if you have suffering, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, then you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. It's not to say that you're blessed because you're going to get through whatever it is. It sets it up to say what it means and that if you are insulted, you are blessed because the spirit rests upon you. It doesn't give another foot line. That's it. You are blessed. That frees us up to know that no matter what the insult, no matter how treacherous the pitfall, we're blessed regardless. Why? Again, because what's the very worst thing? Worst case scenario, we drop dead right now. 
We go home if we know Christ. What's the very worst thing if we are stricken with cancer one day? We get to give testimony that our God is greater. We get to live out practically that though my flesh may fail, God's spirit does not. What's the worst case scenario when we have a family member that's hard to love? We give testimony to one another that we love one another as Christ has loved us, that it's not conditional. What's the worst thing to say if we battle with depression and anxiety that's so heavy set every single day? Quite simply, it's a constant reminder that God is gracious, that He is enough, and that if any suffering may prevail against us, it'd simply be a hammer and nail that drives us deeper into our Savior. That's all suffering is in this life. We can't lose. We can't. John Piper wrote a blog a couple years ago and the headline was Christians in the sense of being invincible. And he caught a lot of heat because people didn't care to read the article. But if you go on to read it, he speaks on this. We have such a firm foundation like we already hit on. This life's not even our own. It's just lent out to us to enjoy Christ and his presence. What's the worst thing that could happen? Bring it on. It's not going to prevail against us. Because here's the thing. This is all done, this life we live, is all in, in anticipation of the coming of the Lord. He's coming back. We see that in verse 6 and 7. It says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's set up by verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to all. The coming of the Lord is at hand. John Knox would go so far as to say that a Christian, simply to a point, should not care not about glorifying the Lord, not about not caring about this life, but that whatever should seek to prevail against us simply shouldn't care. And not just in suffering, but in these mountaintop experiences we can have in the promotion, in the getting a beautiful soon-to-be bride, in brotherhood, in getting to partake in these great things. What are those things even stacked up next to Christ? Nothing. What is the worst suffering imaginable stacked up next to the glory of the Lord? Nothing. So really, all those things are are simply avenues that we can enjoy Christ through. Because here's the thing, quite frankly, I love verse 5 because it's like a subtweet in a way. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. We can be some of the most unreasonable looking people. There's a very reason Jesus himself, while he was walking this earth, called out the hypocrites and the Pharisees. Because in short term, hypocrites and Pharisees were the very people that knew everything they could. 
about the coming Messiah could look the Messiah that was there in the face and still live their life as if they hadn't done either. Why? Because they didn't actually know their Lord. They're going to get to the throne room one day and they're going to be the very ones that are cast aside saying, I never knew you. Let's say, Father, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not prophesy in your name? They might have used his name, but they were never in his name. They never knew him. So he never knew them. <laughs> That's a reason. This is one of the sharpest verses in Philippians. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And the follow-up is, because the Lord is at hand. It's almost like a warning shot but also a battle cry, also our finish line. Our reasonableness should be known to everyone, and we shouldn't place our lives in things that are so temporal. Our patience, our love, and our rejoicing should not fluctuate and blow back and forth to match the wind. How reasonable does that look? What if you broke that down practically for a non-believer? And that same conversation. What if you followed it and flipped it and say, man, my God is good. He gives me the breath I breathe. And man, he died for me. But gosh, I tell you, this week, my kid won't listen. My job stinks. And man, I just don't, don't feel like rejoicing right now. What do they take away from that? How backwards does that seem? If you sit there and tell him, man, I've got everything in my Lord. He has conquered all. No matter what I'm going through now, no matter what I'm going to go through, it is all nailed to the cross. But man, this year. <laughs> is that a true testament that we love our Lord? Do we know how good our Lord is? If that's the rhythm of life, our life follows. How reasonable do we look on a daily basis? The coming of the Lord is at hand. In regards to verses 6 and 7, John Calvin has the, one of the most beautiful quotes I've ever heard. It's said in this way. He said, Here we have a most beautiful sentiment from which we learn. In the first place, that ignorance of the providence of God is the cause of all impatience. <laughs> and that is the reason why we are all so quickly and on trivial accounts thrown into confusion. And often, too, become disheartened because we do not, catch this, please, we do not recognize the fact that the Lord cares for us. He hits every base there. That in the first place, ignorance of the providence of our God is the very root of all impatience. And the very reason we are all so quickly, and not even on things that matter as we just went through, stacked up next to Christ, anything this life has to offer or throw at us is simply loss for gain in Christ. So even on trivial accounts, we're thrown into confusion and often become disheartened because if that's our foundation, we're so quick to forget about a Lord who cares for us. Not only cares for us to the point that He shows us Himself, that God has revealed Himself through Christ to be our rejoicing, 
to be our very means of living, but that he sends his spirit to sustain us. John 14, 15 through 17 says this. If, listen to this. If you love me, this is Jesus speaking here. If, and that's a big if, you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's conditional. Our response being conditional here. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And he goes on, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. A call here. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The chapter would go on to say, as the Spirit dwells in us and is within us, that Jesus himself says to his disciples, so you will do works even greater than mine. Not that we can outshine Christ, but that his very Spirit is given to us so that we can do works that are so great beyond our own comprehension. That's what the Bible is talking about, that we're set up for a life of providence and deliverance far beyond our greatest comprehension. Not that any of us should take that to mean we have the greatest wealth to look forward to. We have the most obedient kids. We have the most loving spouse. We have the most rock-steady job and financial provision to look forward to. But that Christ has come. He is our foundation. That is our yesterday, our today, and our very forever. If we think of anything else to be, we will sink in the quickest sand. We will look unreasonable. We will not keep the Lord's commandments. And if we don't keep those, can we say we love the Lord? You tell me, as Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. But here's the twist. Catch this. That call to keep the commandments of the Father is met with the Spirit of the Father. Like I said earlier, so when we do fall short, as only in the body of Christ it can be, we fall forward. We have people who will either pick us up or drag us and a Father that will wring our neck if need be, all for our good and understanding God's glory. So then, how can we rejoice when we don't feel like rejoicing in whatever we're going through? I would say this. Easy. Easy. You're called to rejoice in the Lord. How could we not? How could we not? How could we not wake up every single day, no matter what's pressing. Not that any suffering in this room is invalid, but again, it stands no match to the work of the cross. It stands no match to the spirit that is shut up within God's church today. It just doesn't. And here's the thing we're practically doing when we think that it does in our minds. We can play the games. We can twist things to be bigger than they are. We can make a mountain out of a molehill because we're making an all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful God look like us. 
We trade in an ever-present and loving Savior who has already come, died, and was resurrected and interceding for us and try to take our own case on our behalf. It's not how it works. It's not how it's meant to work. So, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father. Jesus doesn't leave us wondering, how? How will we do this? Can you imagine? Can you imagine the disciples if they heard this and Jesus left them on a 10-minute cliffhanger? Like, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. No. He follows it up and says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, capital H, to be with you forever. That is the Spirit of the Lord. And friends, if you can say you know Christ, if you can say you love the Lord, it's only because you have experienced His grace and His goodness. It's only because you recognize this life is meant to be lost to gain everything in Christ. That this is not our home. That whatever light and momentary affliction is pressing now does not match up or even come close to the weight of eternal glory. That's what it means to know Christ, not just to say it, but to have a marked life that shows we've experienced that very thing. And we rest in this. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him. He dwells in you. And He will be in you. For all of us this morning, that is the same war cry. That is the same sending call. It is the same Spirit that's written about right here. So for whatever suffering, whatever is pressing, whatever you're trying to be your own Savior in, the call reigns true. Stop. We're called to rejoice in the Lord. Not our best efforts, not our best days. Our hope is far more eternal and promising than anything ourselves, each other, or the world outside has to offer. Why? Because even the Spirit of truth, whom the world can't receive, because they neither see Him or know Him, we've seen. We have come to know the glory of the Lord. That's our wellspring of rejoicing. It doesn't just stop there, though. We rejoice, we fellowship, and we live in this. But we live a life so that for those in the world who cannot receive because they don't yet see and they don't yet know, so that our lives, our words, our relationships with the world can be the very testaments that the Lord uses to reveal himself to those who don't. So I ask again what we started with. How can we possibly rejoice when we don't feel like rejoicing in whatever we're going through? And the answer holds true is that it's quite easy. Not that the suffering is light. Not that it's something that we just glaze over, but we sit in it with one another. And we stay in the pocket. And we remind one another and ourselves that while this suffering feels heavy, it is light and momentary. Why? Because we're called to rejoice in the Lord. And if we know anything about our Lord, 
is that he's the only thing worth rejoicing in. Father, thank you so much that you don't leave us to our own devices. God, that you didn't just throw all of this out there so that we could read it and not respond. God, so again, I pray for everybody in here that whatever it is they carry, whatever it is they bring in here on their own shoulders, God, that they would be reminded this morning the call is to rejoice in you. God, you are our hope. You are our salvation. You are the means by which we even breathe. So, Father, if anything, please help us love you by keeping your commandments. Remind us of your spirit that carries us and sustains us. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen.